Doug Tyrrell, History and Comment is available on iTunes. Hello, friends. I'm Doug Tyrrell. This is History and Comment for Friday, the 7th of April, 2023. As I work through the events of the day, looking for something interesting, I see the normal collection of events, a few firsts in technology, a couple of political events, and birthdays of entertainers, athletes, and business moguls. Then today is one of the most important days on the Christian calendar. It is Good Friday, or the day remembered for the crucifixion of Christ. By stacking various events, names given in the biblical account, and the coincidence with the Jewish Passover, scholars have strongly pointed to April the 7th, 30 AD, as the actual date for the event. Skeptics would like to discount what can be argued as the most significant series of events in human history. That would be a very difficult proposition, to say the least. I like to understand how things work and why and wherefores, deeper than just the surface platitudes. There are several skeptics that have attempted to disprove the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Let's just say that is one of the most certain routes to becoming a believer. There are a couple of points that are most interesting. Several non-Christian historians write of the events, including the Jewish historian Josephus, the Greek Thallius, and the Roman Tactus. Then there are the hostile witnesses, maybe none more compelling than the half-brothers of Jesus, James, and Jude. Both seem to have been highly skeptical of their siblings' claims before the resurrection, and both were later martyred for their belief. We can also place the Apostle Paul in the category of hostile-turned-convert. Paul was a witness to many of the events of the period. It's not out of the realm of possibility that he was in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion and would have been about 25 years old at the time. History does not tell us where he was or who he had contact with at the time. Certainly he was an accessory to the stoning of Stephen. That date is no more than five years after and he had studied for several years under the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. Paul's conversion is dated no later than the year 36. Paul had nothing to gain from conversion. He was well entrenched in the Jewish society, yet his conversion from rabid persecutor to outspoken apostle is dramatic. Chuck Colson made a very compelling argument. If you've forgotten or never heard that name, that is your loss. Chuck Colson was White House counsel in the Nixon administration and one of seven staffers convicted in the Watergate affair. After spending some months in federal prison, he came to be a vocal proponent of the Christian worldview. He states how 12 of the most powerful men in the world could not keep a secret for 30 days. Yet the early believers, who were eyewitnesses to the life and times of Christ, were largely martyred, often violently. People do not willingly die for a lie. The numbers of early Christians who were killed extends far beyond the twelve apostles. Their deaths were not in mass, but spread over the known world and often alone. If we take, then, the biblical narrative for face value, what does it mean? First, it documents maybe the greatest event in human history since the beginning of time. It completely dispels the pagan concept that God is removed from creation and is angry, seeking only vengeance, turning it completely on its head. God is not angry, but instead working to reconcile mankind to himself. The repeated theme in the parables was unimaginable compassion and forgiveness. 
It provides unquestionable support for the claims that Jesus of Nazareth was divine, God appearing to mankind in human form. That simple statement has been the subject of debate for the last 20 centuries and remains quite contentious. How do we comprehend an all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful being? We have great difficulty comprehending that there is no known end to the universe. We cannot fully get our minds around the idea that beyond what we can see and calculate, there is another dimension of the spirit world, parallel to ours and most likely far greater in all terms we can think of and ones we cannot fathom. I like to ponder on the idea of taking a historical person and placing them in today's society, trying to explain technology. We do not have to go back too far. Benjamin Franklin was one of the greatest minds of his day. Sit him down at a laptop computer and attempt to explain to him how it works and what it can do, in terms he can understand. Or use a cell phone, or drive an automobile. I like to simply say he does not understand the physics. Where physics is the deep science, the workings on a molecular level. Now, every bit of physics that make those common things work were present in Franklin's day. He just did not have the knowledge and understanding. The idea is much the same with us, God, and the beyond. Where we do not have the knowledge and understanding does not make them non-existent. The Jewish understanding of a single God had been hand-delivered from God in appearances to Noah, Moses, and Abraham. It had been maintained for over two millennia. They believed that at a future point, God would appear to them as the Messiah or God in the form of man. I really like the description that Tolkien makes in his Lord of the Rings trilogy of Gandalf arriving at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Peter Jackson's film portrayal seems to keep well to the idea. Tolkien was quite familiar with the Bible, and it can be argued his works were a bit allegorical. The scene he describes on paper is what the Jews had in mind during the Roman period of what the Messiah would be. He would also usher the religious elite to a higher place. What they could not fathom was a lowly, blue-collar rabbi who was constantly ridiculing the religious society in no uncertain terms. They had the writings of Moses on Mount Sinai, of clouds and thunderings, columns of fire, and radiant energy, so powerful that a mere mortal would be consumed in his presence. And they got none of that. They could not believe, and for the most part, fought it. The most difficult concept in the Bible is to try to get our minds around God and then compress that into terms we can understand. Back to that Franklin point. Jesus, God in human form, is the most debated concept of the past two millennia. At first, you had eyewitnesses who were mostly of Jewish thought, talking to Jewish believers. Paul, traveling across the Roman world, would be the exception. The point there was a singular spirit God appeared in flesh. A difficult concept for certain, but mostly straightforward. Terms like father and son were used so humans could understand, but failed to completely capture the idea. The difficult part is how do you compress an expansive, infinite God into a finite state or human? It begs a very long list of questions. Then we move into the late 2nd century and early 3rd. The influence of the pagan world began to come into play. 
The Greek and Roman mythologies have a long list of gods, some of which are demigods who are part human and part god. The very founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, were believed to be the twin offsprings of the god Mars and a human virgin. Also contrary to Jewish teachings, the Greco-Roman pantheon was a highly sexual bunch where adultery and incest were quite common. Somewhere in the mix, the Jewish idea that was hard to explain of a single infinite God who came to earth in the form of an infant became corrupted. We have stated clearly the concept of how an infinite God compressed himself into human is difficult to understand. But the creation of the Father Spirit and a Son Spirit, where the latter is then compressed into a human, is not less difficult, and further introduces another order of complexities of how two spirits interact and are related. Then we have further complicated that by adding a third spirit. If the first are father and son, what is the family relationship of the Holy Spirit? I ask somewhat mockingly, but is he the uncle? And we want to advocate that all three are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. The events surrounding the crucifixion offer a number of places where we see human and divine interaction in ways we cannot get into our little minds, let alone explain. But inserting a second or third spirit does not make them less complex. It's easy to get wrapped around the axle of the suffering on the cross. What is mostly lost on us today is that crucifixion was a common sight, maybe weekly or even near daily occurrence. Maybe tens of thousands of them happened around Jerusalem in that period. The Romans ruled by fear and might. The significance was that for a brief few hours, God separated his spirit from his human form and dispensed all of his anger and wrath on that solitary being, building a bridge where man and God could be reconciled. All of God's anger had been spent in a six-hour period on the one man, Jesus Christ, paving a way for all of mankind to be reconciled to the infinite spirit. There are a couple of passages in scripture that give me great concern. One states, Jesus talking, that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The other, that there will be some who claim to be followers of Christ and have cast out demons in his name and yet be rejected as being unknown to him. Back in my working days, I often ate lunch with a guy whose conversations I greatly enjoyed. We were of differing backgrounds and I point blank asked him, when you get to heaven, will you see God and Jesus? Or will it be Jesus expanded in an all-powerful radiance as God? We left out the third possibility held by some that they will see three deities. I will leave you to guess his response. Myself, I differ with much of Christendom. I believe wholeheartedly that we will see Jesus expanded into the full radiance and power of the eternal God. It's a thought that well deserves a very long and serious look devoid of trying to force it into human terms. That's History and Comment for the 7th day of April. I'm Doug Tyrrell. Now go do something worth remembering.